you're listening to the SSPX podcast. Today, we're happy to release a conference given by Father Stephen Reed about times of crisis, how one needs to keep their spiritual life active during times of crisis, and the most important is to keep one's virtue of charity. For more meditations, downloads, and resources, please visit corona.sspx.online. There you can find links to uh, not just these podcasts, but also videos and other resources for faithful. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the SSPX podcast by going to sspxpodcast.com or just search SSPX in any of the popular podcast apps or programs. There you'll be able to subscribe and then receive every episode as soon as it is released. Now we'll turn to Father Stephen Reed. There are many different kinds of crises. The church, as we know, has found herself in a crisis for over half a century now. And we find ourselves now also in a crisis, definitely a more human crisis, but a crisis nonetheless. And when we, when we find ourselves in a crisis, uh, this means perhaps that we are more or less in survival mode. Being in survival mode just means that we focus on the essentials. In other words, we want to make it out of the crisis and we want to make it out of the crisis with as little damage as possible. And so we narrow our focus and this is fine. And in fact, necessary when the crisis is short-lived when it's a matter of minutes or hours. But when a crisis goes on for, for days, weeks, months, even years, we can't continue with that kind of a model. It doesn't work. And more importantly, we definitely cannot forget about the spiritual essentials, the chief of which is charity. And that's the, the topic we have for this small talk uh, I'd like to give you today. Uh, charity during times of crisis. Now, of course, we, we have to understand what charity is. Charity is simply love. And our Lord has many things to say about love. I'll just cite here only one instance from the Gospels. It's the Gospel of, of Matthew, though it's mentioned in the other Gospels as well. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, who maketh his Son to rise upon the good and bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. Be you therefore perfect, as also your heavenly Father is perfect." Now, if you were following along, you probably noticed I skipped a few lines before that last line at the end. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to make a connection between this idea of love, loving our neighbor, even our enemies, and that last concluding line, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, the, the reason why we must love the reason why we must love the person next to us even the person next to us who is unjust to us is because we are meant to be like god we are meant to love as god loves it's the only legitimate reason 
ultimately for loving. We love, we can love in the first place because God has given that to us. And we can love in a supernatural way only with God and for God. As we know, perhaps from our catechism, we know that the supernatural infused virtue of charity, one of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, charity being the most important, is a virtue that comes from God and is also directed necessarily to God. It's all about God. It's why, of course, it's a theological virtue. It's totally focused on God. We receive that, that virtue, as we know, as well from our catechism at baptism. And so before we talk about loving our neighbor, loving the person next to us, we definitely need to first understand loving God. And this is important because it's not something optional. If we want to be saved, and of course we all want to be saved, I certainly hope so. If we want to be saved, we have to love God. It's necessary. The Old Testament has very few references to loving God. There's a lot of things that are said about following him, fearing him, appreciating him, but not so much loving him. Loving God, love of God, is characteristically Christian. Now, the problem or the difficulty that we might run into is this idea of commanding someone to love. We are commanded to love God. You know, for example, you might tell a small child that they have to love their older sister. You can't command a child to love their big sister. It's not possible. Children should love their siblings, even their older siblings, of course, but you can't force them to do that. You can tell them to show signs of affection to their sister, to give their older sister a hug, to thank them for gifts received, because of course children can do these things. The big sister wants affection, but that can't be forced, obviously. In other words, affection is not something that you do. It's something that happens to you. It's something passive. We don't tell children that they have to love their, they have to love their older sister. But interestingly enough, we do tell them that they have to love God. Now the word love here is being used in a different sense, loving the older sister and loving God is different. The main issue here is that we are comparing our love of God with love for a human being. And when we do that, it, it makes it more confusing. The way a newlywed couple, as another example, loves each other, it's all wholehearted focus. Everything is about that other person. We we cancel plans, our habits suddenly change. We have all new interests that we never had before. We become interested in their family when normally we never would have if we hadn't known them because we're infatuated 
a newlywed couple or someone who's close to marriage, they're infatuated by this other individual. They're totally focused on them. With God, it doesn't feel that way. It might feel that way sometimes, but for the most part, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's it's not affection like a newlywed couple. It's it's more like an arranged marriage. And I think this this brings us shame, maybe even a bit of confusion. Because we realize, well, gosh, I don't I don't love God. And I need to love God. This distinction, of course, is talked about uh, many times um, in spiritual writings. Uh, you probably, if you're familiar with it, the difference between affective and effective love. Uh, now, those two words sound awfully similar, so we'll we'll just make a distinction between first love that happens to you, and love as something that you do as an action. Passive love and active love. Now, we have this expression in the English language that's very fitting. Falling in love. That's what we mean when we talk about love that happens to you. When we fall in love, it's a feeling. It's often very sudden. And it's definitely something that's outside of our control. At least at first. In this sense, this love that happens to us, this this passive love, this is something that the saints have had. And this is something perhaps that we have had too, at least in moments. We, we have really felt this love for God and it came to us in a moment of grace. But then there's a different kind of love and that's love as a choice. Love is something that I do. It's an act of the will. And this kind of love, this love is a choice, it doesn't have the same feeling as love that happens to us. It's a choice. And sometimes it's simply nothing other than a choice. It's cold. It's it almost even to in a certain sense, it feels indifferent. And that that can be repugnant to us. But we have to understand, of course, that it's real love. Of course, we can and we will feel this spontaneous love for God. Some of us might feel it more than others, maybe after we receive the sacraments. Um, these flashes of love, they're real, and they, they're not meant to be scorned, but treasured. They're these moments of, of real grace. But much of the time, we, we don't have very great feelings for God. Perhaps at the beginning of our spiritual life, we have a certain fervor, and then it, it tends to it tends to die off. We we have to do what we have to do. We say our prayers, we go to mass, we do all these things, but at a certain point, it feels maybe cold and distant. And we we might ask ourselves, is that true love? And and of course the answer is yes. It it certainly is. By even just by trying to love God, and this is the key, just trying to love God, wanting to love him, knowing that we probably don't love him enough, but knowing that we could always do better and that we want that and we desire that, even if it feels distant from us, that in itself is loving God. Not so much in the sense of falling in love for, with God, 
but as a choice, as something that we do, as an action, as an act of the will. We have to understand as well, though, that just because we make these these deliberate acts of love, these choices, these acts of the will, this doesn't mean that it will all of a sudden turn into love that happens to us. Falling in love is something spontaneous. It's something really ultimately outside of our control, even on the natural level, but also on the level of grace. God will give us his consolations when he is ready to, and we, we just we have to be patient with God. We have to make our meditations. We have to make these acts of love. We have to receive communion with devotion. But all these things, even done many, many times, even for years, they're not going to make us feel God's love. And God, God does this on purpose. God does this because he wants to help us. Not, be, not so much necessarily because he wants to make us repent, although that, that could be the case nor necessarily to humble us, but because God wants us to realize how how little love we have without his help, that we, if we feel our lack of love, it's because it's something that we need from God. Going back to that notion of the, that theological virtue of charity, that supernatural grace. It's why someone like St. Philip Neri could say things like, my God, I do not love you at all. And there, there are many other examples from the lives of the saints that we could cite. But we, we hear that again and again, saints saying that they, they don't love God. And the reason why they can say that is because they, they understand this notion that without God's grace, without God's help, we will realize how, how little we love God. And that's okay. And that and knowing that and striving to go past that and striving to, to love God the way we ought to love him is already an act of love. And so then, of course, don't compare this love of God for maybe love that you might have for your spouse or your children. That is definitely a love of feelings, although certainly there are times we have to make those acts of love that might even feel cold. But that love of feelings is not the same thing, as good as it may be. And so don't even worry so much about our motives for love, whether they are pure or not. Don't ask so much, what is my motive for which I love God? But rather, what is the motive that I need to have in order to properly love God? And remind ourselves of that and strive for that. And knowing that just by doing that, we are indeed loving God and loving God each and every day more and more as we ought. So with that, that squared away, we, we turn now to the situation at hand, which is, as we said, this time of crisis. Being in a time of crisis, as I said, there are many kinds of crisis, crises. To be in a time of crisis uh, means that we we are in a certain kind of isolation and we are also perhaps gripped by fear. And that that that's especially the case in, in this current event, uh, you know, this this pandemic. We are very much physically, many of us, probably most of us, isolated. 
and we are afraid. Um, and, and I would say perhaps legitimately so. Uh, we don't know what the future holds for us. It's a time of at least great inconvenience. We're stuck at home or at the very least limited in our movement and in our job in some way or another. And this, this gives us more time, more time with our thoughts. And this can be a very good thing, but it also gives us perhaps more time to think, more time to maybe even to brood. And this can cause us thoughts of, neg well, negative thoughts, maybe even a kind of cycle of negative thoughts. You know, the fears and the worries and the isolation and the irritability just dealing with our neighbor. We're, when we come closer to each other, we begin to notice our faults more. We begin to honestly become irritated. And when combined with this fear and this really this feedback loop of negativity that we can all of us can very easily get caught in, it's not too difficult to find ourselves lashing out at those whom we perhaps normally would never have trouble with. Maybe we hope during this time of crisis, during this time of, of isolation as well, that we might get closer to God with more time, with more, more silence. Maybe we hope that we'll be able to, to have more time for prayer, to have more time for self-reflection. And maybe because of the difficult circumstances, we are also discouraged. And so prayer might, for some of us, be difficult. Prayer might feel even more difficult than it has before. God might feel farther from us than he normally does. In other words, we, especially during a time of crisis, we can become depressed, we can become discouraged if we're not careful. Now, this, this discouragement, this a kind of depression, not in the clinical sense necessarily, but we could call it a depression. Uh, maybe we could use the words of St. Ignatius, if you've ever been on Ignatian retreat or read the spiritual exercises, perhaps you're familiar with the discernment of spirits that St. Ignatius talks about these really these just these excellent tools to help us through these times of difficulty. St. Ignatius calls this depression, he calls it desolation. And it's during times, he tells us, of desolation that we he gives us many rules. And I, I certainly encourage you to take a look at that um, if you have access to those texts. They're not difficult to find. Uh, read those rules for the discernment of spirits. I think they're especially apt now. But he, he tells us one of the rules for the discernment of spirits. He tells us uh, in times of desolation, do not change our resolutions. Don't change what it is that we set out to do. Don't change your schedules and your plans, um, all the things that you would normally do in times that where things aren't so difficult. You know, maybe you made these resolutions and plans in times of, of consolation, in times of uh, when you were full of zeal, full of courage, or even just at a time when things were normal. 
try as much as possible to keep that normalcy, to keep uh, those good resolutions, to keep um, that regularity, even if we don't feel like it, even if we feel consumed with this, this apathy and this fear. These times of, of desolation are allowed by God in order to help us, in order to even, we could say, to test us. Our life is it's full of ups and downs, highs and lows. That it's just it's our human nature. It how it's how it works. And we need to remember that this this time of pandemic is it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity that can really transform us. Can really transform the world in a good way. And maybe it already has. You know, seeing people turn more to God, seeing people more aware of their neighbor. We have to, but nonetheless, we have to lie still in God's hands and trust in him. Let God work on us in silence. And then we we also need to turn more specifically, consider more specifically our neighbor as well. Um, we, we're called to love our neighbor. We're called to, to love the person next to us. First and foremost, of course, the people who are closest to us, but also people who are more distant from us, people whom we have affection for and people who we don't have so much affection for or don't even notice and meet and also people who give us difficulty. Because during this time of crisis, we find ourselves under various restrictions and difficulties, uh, we will probably begin to notice our neighbor a lot more. And that that is a particular danger that I, I want to address to you. Uh, we're gonna notice our neighbor more. Um, we're gonna notice even just specifically how they react to the various restrictions that are imposed on us. You know, we talk about social distancing and, you know, all these different things, you know, ac- accessibility to the sacraments, for example. You know, some people have it, some people not so much, depending on different places, different circumstances. And we're going to pay a little bit more attention to these other people. And the main danger, the main temptation that we need to avoid is this temptation to judge our neighbor, especially to judge them rashly. Now, rash judgment is is to assume wrongdoing of our neighbor without sufficient evidence. And it, it's something we can all very easily slip into if we're not careful. And it's particularly, as I said, particularly a temptation now during this time of difficulty. It's even just a, a, a particular temptation just in the times in which we find ourselves in general. You know, the speed and the the changeableness of our times it makes assuming things about others um, almost just an impulse you know news comes so quickly and we just we jump to conclusions with with almost no evidence whatsoever we might feel for example that our neighbor is reacting badly to this crisis we don't agree with how they are reacting to it maybe we feel that they're too lax Maybe we feel that they are disobedient. Maybe we feel that they are um, not serious enough about it. Or maybe we 
we see that our neighbor is too preoccupied with it, that they're we maybe we feel we have as an opinion that they they are they're overreacting, they're going too far. Um, they are maybe they're following certain other opinions. You know, we could go on and on with different examples. Um, but the main thing is that we we just need to be aware of, especially our minds. Where where are our minds? Where are our thoughts? leading us because that's where it all begins we we see our neighbor we see this other person and we we immediately we we make a judgment and those judgments lead to other judgments and other ideas and other considerations and then we then we get this feedback loop we find ourselves in this full of all these negative and judgmental thoughts and it's it's at that moment first of all we need to be aware of when that's happening and that just means we have to we have to be present in the here and now focusing on what's in front of us now and we could give a whole other conference on that but we can remember those those words of saint benedict in in his rule to his monks he tells his monks to uh to dash at once against christ the evil thoughts which rise in one's heart and that's that's what we need to do as well. Now is really the time for us to just to get out of our heads and just to remain with God in the here and now in the present moment. One very practical way to help that uh, would be just to turn off the news. Uh, I think you know we definitely need access to information, important information. But I think we can very easily get consumed with that. And that, that once again, is going to lead to that feedback loop of negativity, of judgmental thoughts, of assumptions. Uh, at the very least, will lead us to brooding, uh, which, of course, leads us to this, uh, the assumptions and the, the rash judgment, even of those who are right next to us, even within our own families. And instead, we need to take that time. Instead of focusing on the news, we need to turn to the reality of the reality of the needs of our neighbor right now. We need to all think about what can I do to help lift the hearts of those closest to me, to lift them closer to God, to take this time of difficulty and to make it not into a time of anxiety and worry and depression, but to make it a challenge that we are rising to, to take it as a grace given to us by God as an opportunity to be transformed. How can we help ourselves and help those closest to us and help our neighbor to do that? If our first concern is the spiritual and material welfare of our neighbor, then we won't have time to brood. We'll cut off that feedback loop of irritability and rash judgment and we'll be at peace. And if we're at peace, then our neighbor, those closest to us, will be at peace. We will be definitely an instrument of God's peace. I'd like to conclude then with, um, once again, just words from our Lord from the Gospels, uh, which I think summarizes very well the attitude 
that will help us to have this, first and foremost, this charity, this love for God, this supernatural love for God, which is the root of our love. And then to extend that to this attention to our neighbor, attention to those, especially those who are most in need. Therefore, I say to you, be not solicitous for your life, what you shall eat, nor for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than the meat and the body more than the raiment? Behold the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor do they reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are not you of much more value than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? And for raiment, why are you solicitous? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They labor not, neither do they spin. But I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, was arrayed as one of these. And if the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow, is cast into the oven, God doth so clothe, how much more you, O ye of little faith. Be not solicitous, therefore, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the heathens seek. For your Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Be not therefore solicitous for tomorrow, for the morrow will be solicitous for itself. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof.